Right. Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 8. What we're about to read follows immediately after Stephen was executed. Stephen was one of the first deacons gifted by God to be a compassionate servant to those who are in need. Um, He was also a gifted communicator, teacher, preacher. And uh, when he came under attack by the religious leadership of the day, um, he confronted them with their ungodliness and false doctrine, and they killed him. They stoned him. So we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that uh, you would teach us. You promised that your spirit would guide us into truth. You've given us your word and said it is a lamp unto our feet. And so we pray, Lord, that the spirit and the word would come together and show us what to believe and how to live. We pray, Lord, that you would not just teach us and inform us, but that you would change us in our hearts and in our minds. And that you'd give us grace to endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I really, uh, try and say it softly, hate bullies. I hate bullies. That doesn't make me unique. I think most of you probably have a strong dislike for, if not hate, bullies. Um, And and by bullies, I don't mean, you know, that people kind of pick on each other. If you live in a world, you're going to pick on each other. Sometimes it's friendly, sometimes it's, it's not. But by bullies, I mean... I have a real problem with people that, um, that leverage their strength or their privilege or their position in order to invoke fear in another person or to harm another person. That person, the bully, I have a real problem with. It's, uh, it's triggering for me. Uh, and not just because I was bullied as a little kid. Mostly I was bullied because I had a smart mouth and I had it coming. But sometimes I was just picked on because, you know, I was the new kid. And so let's beat on the new kid. Oh, I have a problem with bullies. Uh, people that go after another who can't adequately defend themselves or won't. And persecution is like bullying. It's different. I mean, in that it's more intense. It's much more serious generally. But persecution shares some similarities with bullying in that it's the world that is using or leveraging their communal or community strength and power to hurt Christians for their confession of Jesus. They are using their cultural power to invoke fear, if not to destroy people for simply following Jesus. And here's the thing, with persecution like this, what they think is actually harming us does, in the end, help us. And that's what I want us to see. I want us to see this principle in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. A persecuted church is a purified church. 
Now, I don't say that glibly as, it's, as if it's an easy thing because a persecuted church is a church in pain. It, it, it's a church that is suffering. But a persecuted church is also a purified church. So that's what I want us to see. And we'll look at these three verses, just three verses today. We're going to look at persecution, what it is, how it works. We'll see it in this passage. And then we're going to look at purity or purification. So first, persecution. What is persecution? Let's clarify what it isn't. Persecution is not anything uncomfortable that you experience as a Christian. It's not even various kinds of suffering that you experience as a Christian. It's not even if somebody does a really mean or bad thing to you when you are a Christian because you might have it coming. Just because a Christian suffers at the hands of another person, even a wicked person, doesn't mean that they are being persecuted. Sure, they are suffering, but if you are suffering for doing evil, that certainly doesn't count as persecution. If you're suffering because of your political views, that's not necessarily persecution. You can share those political views with people that are of a completely different faith. Persecution is different. The word persecute essentially means to press, right, or to pursue. It really means to oppress, right, to chase and to control and to crush. Let me define it this way. Persecution is the intentional mistreatment of Christians because of their faith. It's not just the intentional mistreatment of Christians, but it's the intentional mistreatment of Christians because of their faith. Sometimes we get confused. We think like, oh, they're coming at me because I'm a Christian. They may just be coming at you because you are loud and obnoxious. They may just be coming at you because you are showing favoritism to some and not to others. Persecution is the intentional mistreatment of Christians because of their faith. And persecution is more than, it's broader than martyrdom. A lot of us think of persecution in the extreme cases, right? Like Stephen. Stephen died for his faith. He was murdered. And that's persecution, clearly. But persecution is not just physical harm. It's not just physical attacks. It's also social or civil. It can be familial. Uh, it, it, it can be emotional. Right? And it, yeah, certainly it, it, it can be physical. In fact, it can be words, not just fists or clubs or coliseums. In, in Matthew chapter 5, I think Jesus demonstrates this, demonstrates this for us. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So there we have the definition and some examples all kind of wrapped up, right? You're being attacked on the account of Jesus. And so we are blessed when others revile us, persecute us, utter all kinds of evil against us, words and actions. It all comes together in persecution when God's people are pursued or hunted or afflicted on account of following Jesus. So persecution, the intentional mistreatment of Christians because of their faith, Christians, all Christians, not just leadership, it's not just the missionary preaching the gospel in a new place. It's all Christians that can experience this. And in fact, in this passage, we see that. Look at verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul 
We see him, he is, he is going into these homes. He's getting word, he's, he's getting recon that there are these people that are preaching that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords and that there is salvation and redemption for all who look to him and believe on him. He hears about these people and he hunts them down. He kicks in the door, he goes into their homes and he carts them away. And not just the husbands, but men and women. There is no discrimination here. Just as we preach the gospel to every living creature, Paul is willing to take every living creature to jail if they believe in Jesus. Persecution comes to all. And, and look at this when it says, well, Saul was ravaging the church. That, that, that word ravaging, it, 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 means to, it means to destroy. He's destroying the church. It, some old translations use the word havoc. He was havocing. Now, we use the word havoc to mean like inconvenience or a mess, Right? Like, uh, like last night, uh, my, my kids are playing uh, Wii because we're always like 10 years behind. So they're playing Wii uh, in the living room at like 11 at night. And, uh, and I'm like, guys, you're, you're being too loud because like some of the house is sleeping. So you got to be quiet. You got you to quiet scream like, ah, you can't, you can't actually do it. You can't bang around. You got to be more chill. And they blame it on the dog. But it doesn't matter. The point is, is I would say, oh, they're wreaking havoc down there. That's not what havoc is. Havoc is widespread destruction. That's what havoc is. It's widespread disaster. This is what Paul was doing to the church. Widespread disaster, dragging off men and women to prison because of Jesus, because of their faith, because of their gospel testimony. This is what persecution is. Now, what is it that persecution winds up doing or what are the effects of persecution? Um, and I would say that there is, in general, we can boil it down, there is a, a negative effect and a positive effect. And the simplest way that I can summarize the negative effect of persecution is to just simply say it is loss. The effect of persecution, right, the painful experience of persecution is loss. You will lose something if you are truly persecuted. And it happens in different ways. You might lose your family, right, for a time or for the rest of your life. Some people lose their family. They lose their standing in their family. They lose their family's acceptance. Sometimes persecution means that you lose your, your friends, your circle of friends, or maybe you lose your community. Maybe you're no longer welcome even uh, in, your, in your neighborhood. You can lose your home. You can lose your, your country. You can be considered an outcast. You might have to run away. You lose safety. You can't rest. You can lose your life, if not just your health. When we per are persecuted, we will experience loss, and it's hard, and it hurts. And it is the consequence of evil in the world and unbelief in the world. But that's not the only effect, because there is a positive effect. And the positive effect of persecution on the church is purity. See, what happens when the church is persecuted, pressure is applied, right? They, the, the world is seeking to destroy, to hurt, to quiet us down, to shut us down, and so they apply all kinds of pressure, different ways, different forms, different times. And what happens? Well, the pretenders in the church stop pretending because they can't handle that smoke. It's too hot. It's too much. They walk away. It's not worth it because they're pretenders. And in, in, in any generation and in any city, there are people that are aligned with and a part of the church, but they're really not 
following Christ. And it doesn't mean that they are deceiving people and they're out to trick people, that they are perhaps fooling themselves. But the pretenders, when persecution starts, the pretenders, they stop pretending. The posers walk away. It's not worth it. But those who believe, those who have faith, their faith is tested and proven to be true. So the church becomes smaller during times of persecution, but it becomes stronger because they've learned the reality that Jesus is their only hope in life and in death, that he is everything. The world can take away so much. We will lose much, but we cannot lose our God and he will not lose us. The church is strengthened in persecution and we're going to see why. But, but first, persecution, right? The intentional mistreatment of Christians because of their faith, it demonstrates uh, the, the, the painful reality of loss as a consequence, but also purity. And this particular persecution here in Acts chapter eight is a sanctioned persecution because it's coming from the Jewish leadership of the day, Saul, Saul in particular. Now we see in verse one, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. We've already talked about Saul. Saul was a bright student of Gamaliel, the really perhaps considered to be the brightest light among uh, the, the rabbis and, and, and the Jewish leadership of his day. Uh, you know, Pharisee of Pharisees. This was the guy. But Gamaliel, uh, he was chill right? Uh, he, was, uh, he was a moderate. He didn't, like, he didn't like things getting too crazy, too hot. He liked to calm things down, kind of find the middle road. You know the kind of person. That's who he was. Paul is not like his mentor. Paul is, in the worst form of this word, a hard fundamentalist. He is, he is very zealous and rigid. He is hostile. He is angry. He is much different than Gamaliel because he's He's actually seeking to do harm. He was aggressive and fanatical and zealous and wrong. Paul even talks about his own zeal in this part of his life. Later on, he talks about it after he's converted and we really know him as the apostle Paul. Uh, later on, he thinks back and he was like, man, I was characterized by zeal. I had so much zeal that I was willing to hunt people down and see them executed. He had zeal without knowledge zeal that wasn't governed by the gospel. So this, this persecution that the church's experience is sanctioned by the religious leadership of the day. And this is important to note because we need to understand that persecution comes from different quarters of the world. Sometimes I think we have in our minds, right? Maybe it's because of the religious traditions that we grew up in, but we tend to think of persecution. Okay, persecution is going to be the government oppressing Christians. And that is one way that persecution happens. The government comes after the church, actively persecutes, uh, penalizes uh, the exercise of Christian faith, uh, blocks the, the ability for churches to gather and to appoint leadership, outlaws the proselytization of unbelievers, or the preaching of the gospel. So yes, persecution can come from the government, but persecution can also come from just society. In fact, oftentimes you'll see in church history, it's not the government that's persecuting the church, it's just the neighborhood. 
It's the neighborhood who has issues with the faith because the faith is encroaching into the neighborhood. People are being converted and now citizens are feeling the pressure, the reality of the gospel and the truth of God. And they don't like it. And the government doesn't actively persecute. They passively, by just turning a blind eye, oh, the neighborhood's going to beat up and stone or kill these Christians. Well, we'll get around to looking into that maybe when we're not so busy, you know, putting tickets on cars or whatever they were doing in the first and second century. They, they give a pass to, co- to the society to do this. So sometimes it comes from citizens or your neighborhood. Sometimes it comes from the government. Sometimes it comes from a competing religion, right? A religion in, in town, right? And in this case, we see, okay, it's, 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 it's the religious leaders uh, of Israel here at this time are coming after the church. And so sometimes it is a, a, a religious persecution that's motivated, the attack. So persecution comes from different places, but it's always, it's always driven by the devil. Always driven by the devil. Doesn't matter which, it doesn't matter whether it's secular or religious, the devil is behind persecution. And in fact, a passage that many people go to is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Because here, we have an account of, of the devil's work against the church. And we sometimes take this and apply it directly, immediately to our personal, individual, spiritual struggle. And that's fair, but it's actually specifically applied to persecution. So look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Or listen, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, right? So, so be serious, be careful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, to destroy, to persecute. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Persecution, that's the context. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Persecution is moved, right? It's empowered by the devil to destroy us, the church, followers of Christ. And we must resist the devil, firm in our faith, through the testing of that faith. When it's proved true and we persevere, the devil eventually flees. The church is persecuted. In this case, right, in Acts chapter 8, it's through a a, a religious leadership And the consequence of this, the loss that they experience is the loss of home because many of them, it says, scatter. Back to verse one. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So it's localized, right? Persecution is generally localized. It's in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So these Christians are experiencing intense persecution. It ratchets up very much and so they flee they have to leave town they lose their home they lose their city the city that they love they lose it all they seek a safer city in which to live and this is this is pretty common people that are persecuted oftentimes run and we'll we'll, we'll talk about that as as, as one of the proper responses that the church has to persecution These people are running away and this scattering of people, of Christians, because of persecution becomes called the diaspora, 
means dispersion. Now, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, if you've been in church a long time where there's lots of Bible teaching, you've probably heard of the diaspora before. And it may have been applied more directly to Israel because the nation of Israel experienced a diaspora. It's a little different, though, than the church experiencing a diaspora. The old, in the Old Testament, Israel experienced a dispersion when their own idolatry and rebellion against the Lord moved God to allow foreign nations to come in and to sack both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel as a judgment for their sins. And when these, these kingdoms were taken, right? So they come in, they take the, the northern kingdom and they take the people out of the country. They take the Jews into foreign lands captive, so the, the people of God are being dispersed all over the world in these pagan cultures and countries. First the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom. They were dispersed. And so whereas the, in, the, in the old covenant, the nation of Israel was supposed to be this concentrated light that was a beacon to the world, now it was diminished. It was, it was diffused because the people are scattered and they're no longer in the land that God gave them. The temple is no longer there. The sacrifices aren't being made. But in the New Testament, when the church is being dispersed through persecution, it's not on account of their sin. It's the sin of the world against the church that is forcing them to scatter to find safety. And as they go, they take the gospel with them. As they go, they keep preaching Jesus and churches are planted. And so the church continues to grow through this diaspora. In fact, this becomes a real thing. I mean, the, the church was called the dispersion. Uh, you can look at James chapter one, verse one. Just listen. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To whom is he writing? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Right, the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now that moniker being applied to the church, right? To all of God's people who are dispersed. You can also look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse one for the same kind of a thing where the church is called those people who have been scattered or dispersed. But this persecution actually winds up purifying. The church doesn't. It makes it stronger. It makes it better. So that's persecution. Let's talk a little bit about purity and purification. Through this persecution, the church is preserved. It's persecution in Jerusalem. And yet, despite the scattering, the church remains. There is a faithful group of people that stay in Jerusalem despite the per persecution. They don't lose. Many scatter, many leave, but not all. First, we know the apostles stay because it says in chapter 8, verse 1, that everybody scattered throughout the regions except the apostles. The ones that were like the most valuable targets of persecution, they stayed. They weren't going anywhere. They knew God called me here. He sent me here to this city for this time, so I'm going to stay. And the apostles stayed to strengthen the church, to make disciples, even if it meant their lives, they were willing to give it. But it wasn't just the apostles who stayed. Many other Christians stayed as well. In fact, we know this because of what it says in verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. This is important because it means in the face of persecution, these guys are staying put and they're doing something. They're burying Stephen with loud lamentation. Technically, they're not supposed to do this because when Stephen was condemned and executed as a criminal, the policy is you, you don't get to have a proper burial or a season of mourning for criminals 
who are condemned to stony. You don't do it because they're cursed. They're the cursed of God. So there will be no memorial. There will be no remembering. There will be no mourning. But immediately, what do these guys do? They're devout men and they love Stephen and they know Stephen was a godly man and they know that that, that kangaroo court that convicted him was bogus. So they don't care. They're going to do it, even if it costs them dearly. And so they immediately, they bury him and they mourn him publicly. They lament the loss. So the church is persevering in Jerusalem. And they're persevering because they're experiencing this purification. How, how does this work? How does persecution actually produce purity in the church? So I'll give you a general principle and then I'll explain in a more detailed how it works um, in a more detailed way. The general principle is simply this. Throughout scripture, we see from in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, all the way through to the last book, Revelation, that God uses evil to accomplish good. That God is not the author of evil. He does not sin. He does not cause us to sin, but he can use the evil actions of wicked men to accomplish his good purposes. God will use evil that exists to do great things for his glory and for the good of his people. Now, more specifically, we can just read James chapter one, verses two through four. Because the principle that we have here is that when our faith is tested by means of affliction, it is proven to be true and therefore strengthened. It is improved. James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the same testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." So there's a really hard word at the beginning of this that is hard to hear. We need to admit that. But it's followed by great encouragement and grace. The hard word is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials are afflictions. They are painful. They are sometimes just circumstantial and they're not, there's no one you can really look at and blame, but sometimes it comes at the hands and the intentions of bad people. And James says, hey, when you encounter trials, afflictions, difficulty, pain, suffering, count it joy. It doesn't mean that you should be happy that you are suffering. It certainly doesn't mean that the affliction that you are experiencing is good in and of itself. But it does mean that we can find joy in the midst of that experience because of how God will use it. And that's what he explains. It's the testing of our faith that produces steadfastness. When we are afflicted, our faith is tested. What do you believe? What do you trust in? What is your hope in life and in death? What, what grounds you in reality? What is the, the means by which you understand the world? What is it that defines you? Your faith in God, in Christ, your dependency upon him is tested when you are afflicted. And when it is found to be true, you have steadfastness. You're able to weather and, and then the consequence of steadfastness is what? That we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That sounds strange because ain't nobody here close to perfection. None of you. None of us, right? We are a train wreck away, like far away from perfection. But that word here doesn't mean what we tend to mean when we think of perfection. Here it really means maturity. Right? So it's, it's the idea that when we, our faith is tested, 
We develop steadfastness. And as we continue to develop steadfastness through the the testing of our faith, we wind up complete, made whole, mature. We we, we, we are, are being made complete in our faith and our understanding of God, not perfect in the sense of being without flaws, but not lacking anything that we need for life and godliness because God provides all of it for us through Christ. This is how the church is purified through persecution. See, your persecution, which you have experienced or you will experience, whether it be on the small, very personal scale or more widespread social scale, when you experience persecution, make no mistake about it, it is aimed at your destruction. It is aimed at the destruction of your faith. But if you have faith, it will in the end prove to strengthen it. You will be tested and you will find steadfastness. Yes, when you are persecuted, it seeks to create havoc. But what it does is it leads to holiness because you know where your hope lies. And you have learned and you are certain, more certain now than before, that God's word is true and that the world cannot take away from you what is most important. A persecuted church is a purified church. So let me end with this because this is where I usually go. How should the church respond to persecution? What does, because I tend to think, like, listen, I don't like bullies. You know what? I'll tell you, words of wisdom from Pastor Joe. What bullies need are a punch in the nose. As a general principle, I believe that to be true. Now, because I feel that way and because I think that would be a good life practice in general um, I'm tempted to say like oh well when, well if somebody's bullying the church somebody's picking on the church we got to fight back we got to punch them in the nose oh they're coming at us we're going to come back at them right that's that's sort of my, my 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 initial thinking right that's the gut reaction but this is not what we see in scripture I'm going to give you five ways in which the church should react to persecution number one we must pray And don't roll your eyes either. And not visibly. You're too smart to do that in church because I can see you. And in your head, you're like, okay, I know we should pray. Yeah, we should pray because persecution is real, it's painful, and it brings loss. And while God does use it to strengthen our faith, many do struggle. Many are hurt deeply in the process. And persecution is something that you not just pray for yourself when you're in the midst of it, but we need to be praying for the persecuted church abroad and all over the world because, listen, there are 350 million Christians today that live in cities and cultures and contexts where they are aggressively persecuted. Not like, oh, it's a little inconvenient to be a Christian in this environment. It's dangerous for them. 350 million people. You know how many people were martyred this last year? because of their faith in Jesus, not because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, not because they, they, they dared to challenge a, a ruler uh, over some political or social issue. I mean, how many people were murdered in the last 12 months because of their faith in Jesus? 5,898 in the last year. 5,110 churches were burned or destroyed or attacked across the world 4,765 Christians were detained uh, without uh, representation or without even legal grounds you you can find these kind of stats on on any good uh, ministry that that advocates for the persecuted church voice of the martyrs there, there are many 
The point being is that persecution is a reality even if you aren't experiencing it right now. And so our response must be to first pray. We see this happening in the book of Acts. Peter, the apostles, they are persecuted and the church gathers together and they start praying. What are they praying for? To get him out? I'll tell you right now, if I ever get arrested for preaching Jesus and I'm going to court, totally okay with you praying for me to get out. That's, that's, I'm good. Pray for me to get out of the trouble. Totally fine. But that's not the main thing the church prays for in the midst of persecution. What does the church pray for those who are being persecuted? We pray for their purity. We pray for their profession of faith. We pray for their perseverance. We pray for them to hold fast. So number one, we pray. Number two, yes, we should defend ourselves when we are persecuted. We should defend ourselves when we are persecuted. That does not mean physical defense. That does not mean you you take up arms against people because uh, the the, the culture or the government is attacking uh, your beliefs, right? To defend ourselves biblically, what we see happening is defending ourselves with words, Right? We defend ourselves. Now listen, there are people out there that have this mistaken idea that, hey, when I as a Christian am attacked or slandered or whatever, you know what? I'm not going to say a thing. I'm going to remain silent. Just like Jesus remained silent before his accusers, I will remain silent. How virtuous of you. You're not Jesus, okay? And you're not saving people from the world, so stop that. Not everything that Jesus did is an example for you to follow. He didn't get married and he wore Birkenstocks, right? So neither one of these things most of us want to do. Jesus is an example to us in all of his moral uh, fulfillment of the laws and in so many ways. But be careful with trying to say like, oh, well, Jesus was, I just had a couple of friends in the last two weeks. I've had two friends tell me that I'm in the middle of the situation. Some bad things are going down. I'm innocent. But you know what? I feel like I shouldn't defend myself. People are telling me don't defend yourself because just let God defend you. That's nuts. Okay. First of all, that's not what we see in scripture. Read the Psalms. How many times does David say, vindicate me, God, before my accusers. Vindicate me before my attackers. Let them know that I'm innocent, that I'm righteous, and that they are wicked. He says it a lot. <laughs> he says it a lot. Psalm 26, Psalm 35. Just, just Google search vindicate in the ESV. Uh, you'll find many of them. So it happens with David. It happens with Paul in Acts 26 when Paul stands before King Agrippa. He, the whole thing is about him defending himself with words. Paul, Paul does this in, in the epistles. He's frequently defending himself against the accusations that he's not really an apostle. And so he attempts to defend his, his ministry. You can see uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 for that. So we should defend ourselves when we have the opportunity with words, civilly, yes, politically, yes, but not violently. Number three, how do we respond to persecution? Run. I know that's not cool. I know it's not what, you know, uh, what some of you think about when you think of like, I'm going to contend for the faith. Uh, I don't want to run away because I'm scared. What are you going to run away because you're scared? Are you afraid? Yeah, yeah, you should be afraid. Persecution is scary. So yes, people run away. If you don't think people hunting you down with pitchforks and torches is scary, you're crazy. People leave when there's danger. And we see the Apostle Paul does this. He sneaks away, gets hidden in a basket. That's not very manly. It's smart. I don't know why it's not manly. I think preserving his life in order to preach the gospel is pretty manly. 
I don't know what that has anything to do with it anyways, but I know how people think. So listen, run, running is fine. It is biblical. In fact, it is what Jesus tells us to do. Matthew chapter 10, listen to verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. In other words, run and keep running and get used to it. Because this is one of the proper responses to persecution. So pray, defend, flee. Number four, trust. A proper response to persecution at all times is to trust the Lord. You've got to trust him. You trust God in your affliction, just like Jesus did. But here is the secret, the key, really, right? We trust God in our affliction as we trusted Christ for his affliction. I'm going to go back to this passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 21 through 24. We read this during the Lord's Supper. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21. Listen again. For to this you have been called to suffer. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father in the midst of his persecution. That's what we follow. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. This is the gospel, people. This is the good news. We trust God in the midst of our suffering because we can trust Christ for his suffering because we know that he suffered for us. When Jesus entrusted himself to the Father to suffer, it was to save us from our sin and guilt. Trust is paramount. And fifthly, lastly, we respond to persecution with rejoicing. With rejoicing. We don't rejoice because persecution is fun or cool. We don't rejoice because persecution is easy. They aren't happy days. We rejoice because we know that in the midst of the worst attacks the devil can throw at us, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell is a metaphor for death. Though we all die, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because Jesus himself is building it. So persecution is its best attempt at the devil to overthrow the kingdom and he fails every time. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in this. I'm going to close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Just listen. We rejoice in this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's how we rejoice because we know that a persecuted church is a purified church. It's a church that perseveres. 
because though the world does its worst and we can even lose our earthly lives, we know that in Christ we are more than conquerors and victorious because Jesus has already overcome the world. His gospel continues to spread. Souls are saved. His kingdom is established. And the best that the world can do, the worst forms of persecution purifies. It was, it was Tertullian, I believe, who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. For every life that they can take, for every inflicted blow, the church is strengthened, the gospel is proven to be true, and we are made mature for God's glory. It's for our good too, but it's also for the spread of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do not wish to be persecuted. We do not ask for it. But Lord, when it comes, and we know that it does come, when it comes, we pray that you would be faithful to your word, that your spirit would give us the words to say in the context of being brought before our accusers. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts and our hands to be faithful to you and to follow the example of Christ our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.